Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that. Uh, That doesn't even cover the issue of broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, Alex Trelaw with you. Welcome to Countrywide. This week, coming from Mount Isa in outback Queensland. How much do you think you could get paid for driving trucks? The people that we're looking for are normally the ones that, that just this love this lifestyle it's not really a job it's a lifestyle so the money's a bonus with the skill shortage around the country there's some eye-watering salaries being offered for essential jobs like truckies find out how much you could earn in this half hour and this week the nation and the world watched as queen elizabeth ii was farewelled at her funeral her pet corgis were shown to be there to say goodbye to their owner today we'll look closer at the corgi breed And while they might not look like the traditional sheepdog, they are being used on farms. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. Back in 1960, there were around 17,000 dairy farms in New South Wales. Today, there are around 500, which is a 95% decline. In some regions like the Snowy Valleys, this trend has seen once a thriving local dairy industry all but disappear. Olivia Culver spoke to the Malone family, who are now one of the only two dairy farms left in the Tumut region. When Peter Malone's family started dairy farming in the 1920s, dairy farms were located every way you looked up and down the Tumut Valley. Initially, the Malone family produced cream for the Tumut Butter Factory, but by the 1950s, the focus was on milk, which they supplied to construction workers at the Snowy Hydro Scheme, along with the residents of Tumut. In, in late fifty, we put in a cartoning plant and supplied fresh milk around the town in cartons. Then we progressed to uh, put in. We were the first to put in bulk milk. We bought a we bought a bulk fat and a tank from the back of our truck. Used to cart into the factory, local factory. When the milk board took over, and then we progressed to a rotary there in mid seventies. Can you paint a picture for what the dairy industry looked like when you were younger in this sort of Tumut oh. Valley or Riverina? Well, the, the cream carrier would start up in Blowing Valley and by the time you got to our place, he had probably 100 cans of cream on the truck. Over the years, the number of dairy farms have dwindled and the Malone family are now the only ones left in the Tumut Valley. Today, it is Peter's nephew, Kevin, who has taken the reins. He says a number of factors have seen their dairy farming neighbours disappear. I think originally it was um, health regulations that got, got things started. A lot of dairies had to be upgraded and refrigeration was required and um, just the scale of operation. Oh yeah, the year 2000 when milk was deregulated, I think there was nearly nine, nine or ten dairy farms still going in the area. Deregulation whittled quite a few of those out fairly quickly. It was a hard time in the drought from year 2000 they deregulated and we had the 10 year drought. And well, dairy is not a really sociable acceptable type of pastime. It's uh, got these strange hours of getting up very early and working very late and doing it 20, no, uh, no, 7 days a week. Everybody did it so it's good. Everybody yes, when everybody's doing yeah, it in the yeah. valley that's fine. And now when you're now ones it's a different story. Mm. So what are the challenges that you face day to day these days? Um, being the only dairy farmer left in this this valley? 
probably the, the biggest challenges that we, we find now is, um, is getting a, a labour source. Quite challenging to, um, to get people wanting to, to help doing dairy. That and, and the service providers, because there's not the, the amount of dairying going on or, or general farming going on here, there's the businesses that used to supply and service the farming industry have disappeared out of the Tumut area and you've got to go to Wagga or further afield to get um, a- any work done. What do you see as the future of your dairy here? Now that's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly I, I do have a son that's interested in agriculture but I think if he was to return here, he'd like to see a few changes, a bit of modernisation. So, yeah, I'm just not too sure how we're going to go there. Being the only, only two dairies left in the area, yeah, look, it might be a challenge for us to be a viable farming system here in the future. Although the dairy industry has changed beyond recognition in the Wagga and Tumut regions, there have been some constants. For 100 years, the Riverina Fresh Milk Processing Plant has stood on the main street of Wagga Wagga. Chief Executive Officer Rob Collier says to ensure their continued survival, they've tried to carve out a market in the hospitality industry. We think we've developed a point of difference with some unique milks, with some unique attributes. Having that focus on cafe culture and that whole sort of industry, you must have had to pivot a little bit when COVID did hit. We certainly did. So it was a challenge for everyone in hospitality. I think it was one of the sectors that was hit hardest initially. We were fortunate to speak to our retail partners who at that stage were having supply challenges from the industry and were able to, at the initial stages of of COVID, um, supply additional volumes to Woolworths um, into New South Wales and Victoria over and above our, our sort of normal footprint, if you like. And that gave us some breathing space. It was, a, it was a big help. Can you tell me a bit about your dairy farmers? Where do they come from? And is the number growing or is it consolidating? We've obviously seen dairy farmers go through some very difficult times over recent years. How have you sort of supported them and what's happening there? It's been, it's been tough in dairy. There's no two ways about it. We've, we've got pretty strong relationships with our farmers. We've got most of them on long-term supply agreements, which is what they've asked for, so that they've got certainty and they've got outlook. It's hard to define, sort of summarise what's happening with the industry in, in sort of one sentence. Every circumstance is a little bit different. There's no doubt that in the region there's been a loss of dairy farms, I guess, across the Riverina and northern Victoria, the broader region, if you like. Having said that, some of our farm suppliers have grown and they've, um, you know, they're optimistic about the outlook of the industry. They're encouraged by what they're seeing as, I guess, price movement in the market, which is helpful, innovation and technology. And so some of them are actually investing and growing. So it's not so much about numbers of farmers, it's how much milk they're producing as well. Um, and so a lot of them are now, you know, are growing, they're becoming more efficient, but we're certainly optimistic that there's a path for this business and a path for the industry and certainly a path for our, you know, our local farmers. Riverina Fresh CEO Rob Collier ending that report by Olivia Culver. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. You're listening to Countrywide, Alex Trelaw with you. You might have heard a lot this year about the increasing threat of exotic diseases in the agricultural industry like foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease. And while extreme weather events sweep across the world, academics and farmers are increasingly concerned about the spread of these diseases. 
As the climate warms, these diseases and their host insects, bats and birds are posing new threats to the agriculture industry in Australia, as Hannah Jose reports. Dr Prasad Paradka is Senior Research Scientist at CSIRO. He says there are more cases of these diseases being reported from Southeast Asia. So we are seeing an increase in detection and uh, increased threat. And uh, that's because of sort of several factors, and one of which is climate change, which is a main driver of this increased incidence and geographic distribution of these diseases. There are some direct effects of climate change, which leads to, um, and these are things like extreme events, so cyclones, which can blow an infected insect and bring the disease into this new geographic area like Australia. And once it's here, then local insects can transmit it. Mm. Um, and this has been shown in case of smaller insects like biting midges or mosquitoes, which have been shown to be transported over long distance. Climate change also means increased average temperatures, which uh, can increase the geographic distribution of those insects, like exotic insects, which can come into Australia and make a, make a place here. Dr. Michael Ward is Chair of Veterinary Public Health at Sydney Uni. He told Michael Condon that climate change's effects can be seen clearly in particular areas. Probably the two areas where it's the clearest are the vector-borne diseases, so mosquitoes and midges, and also parasitic diseases, so, you know, the worm-type diseases. So both of those probably do have, you know, the the changing climate would have a direct um, impact, essentially sort of larger populations of either mosquitoes, midges, or also worms as well, surviving longer, um, pathogens sort of reproducing faster. People have thought for quite some time uh, mosquito-borne type diseases, lumpy skin disease, and then in the human field, the uh, Japanese encephalitis outbreaks that we've seen. The other thing too, uh, Hendra disease, that seems to be moving south as well and the bats are moving. Is that is that the climate uh, pushing the bats further south? So that would be an example of this sort of indirect effect where climate might affect habitat and particularly, um, and that's known to be a cause of disease emergence and disease spillover. So things like Hendra virus, um, where the habitats change. So it could be climate driven where they're moving, moving south. It could be sort of land clearing or change in horticulture or, you know, El Nino impacts, drought impacts, all those sort of things that then shift the bat distribution and then we get that spillover occurring. Dr Chris Parker is the National Lumpy Skin Preparedness Coordinator with the Department of Agriculture. He says the disease is not a big concern for Australia yet, but it could be very soon. Lumpy skin is not close enough yet for the vector to blow into Australia, but if it's to spread further east and south within Indonesia, then it would be getting close enough to worry about. The disease is actually transmitted by biting insects, and the concern would be that in a big cyclone or a big weather event, that those biting insects that are infected with the disease may well blow into the north of Australia. Edwina Beveridge is a pork producer and director of Belantyre Farms in southwest New South Wales. She told David Clawton the arrival of Japanese encephalitis earlier this year was a huge shock. Interestingly, it's not the mosquitoes moving that created the problem. They believe it's migratory birds that have been infected with Japanese encephalitis then fly, flying further south and then a mosquito bites Japan, the infected bird and can then pass that on to the pigs or people in our area. Right. And were you surprised by that? 
Yes, well, we've never had... I mean, Japanese encephalitis has been around for a long time. It's been in a lot of Asia and it's not a new uh, problem to have in a pig farm, but it is new to us because we've uh, always been too far south for that, you know, that bug to spread down this way. But there are cases now in Victoria and South Australia, I hear. Yes, yes, interesting. All the way, I mean, it's never been, it hasn't been in Queensland before either. So it will be really interesting to see what happens in the future. You know, was it a one-hit wonder or are we going to be impacted again this year? We think it's quite likely we will be impacted because it's so wet. Some studies suggest there could be a risk of Nipah virus too, as bats, which spread the disease, have been recorded moving between Malaysia, Indonesia and Australia. In 1998, Malaysia had a serious outbreak of Nipah, killing over 100 people. ABC's Hannah Jose ending that report. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. A number of Tasmanian farmers are still owed hundreds of thousands of dollars for hemp crops harvested back in March. Many of those will now drop hemp this season and is expected to leave a big hole in the state that grows Australia's largest commercial crop. Larissa Smith explains. It's nearly five years since laws were changed to allow hemp to be sold as food in Australia. And it spurred a new wave of Tasmanian growers keen to cash in on the crop. Ben Morrison from Nile in the state's northeast was one of them. Like We run into wet springs where we don't get our spring crop in our poppies and peas and the likes of that. and Because hemp's a late crop, it was sort of like a good backup plan, which, yeah, pulled us out of the stick. Yeah, it was easy to grow in the first few years. Yeah, it was a good gap filler crop. He's grown for several companies and in the last season for Australian Primary Hemp. It's a Victorian-based business now trading on the ASX as the Sustainable Nutrition Group. Last year, it contracted 13 growers in Tasmania to produce hemp for its seed, oil and protein powders. Now, typically, growers are paid at the end of June or after the crop has been cleaned. They're still waiting for that to happen. That's what's turned us off hemp. It's just, just always something with it. Um, what are you owed? It's probably $170,000. Like In our business, like we're quite reliant on that to get us through our spring period now. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's going to going to change our the way we do things for the next bit and he's not alone other growers are owed between 40 and 200 thousand dollars james hood is a non-executive director and co-founder of australian primary hemp he explains why its payment structure is staggered and the reason growers are getting paid so late this season. We opted for a little bit of a different model to a lot of the other outfits in the industry where we have deposit payments on field dress weights as soon as they're realised and then it gives us, you know, it gives the farmer something and gives us a um, little bit of time to ensure that the crops are viable for um, for food because uh, there's obviously microbial testing and things that happen during the uh, initial stages and then after cleaning. Uh, we, we then offer a... Um, uh, balance payment on the on the field on the finished clean and dried weights because uh, obviously before that it's uh, we, we can't um, determine it so it's our best estimate is the initial deposit payment and then balance is paid at completion of uh, of cleaning we've had some delays in our cleaning process uh, the company is going through strategic review as well which has uh, delayed things slightly but we're we're back on track with uh, 
with cleaning shortly and um, hoping to have farmers paid out uh, in due course. So you're fairly confident that uh, those payments can be made and finalised? As I understand, with that strategic review, there's been a, a trading halt within the company. What sort of confidence can you provide those growers that they will get their money? Very very confident that uh, full payments will be made on those, uh, those grain balances. Regardless, farmer Ben Morrison says he won't be growing hemp again. Yeah, especially the way the livestock industry is and the options we've got in Tasmania. I think I'll just, just stick to something simple with a, yeah, a more solid market. Like it's a niche product. It's not a, an everyday product, I wouldn't have said. It is for some people, but not, yeah, it's not a staple part of our civilization, I would say. Taz Seed Dressing and Storage, which cleans the seed for Australian primary hemp, says it doesn't have any concerns with the company's ability to pay its accounts. It says it's actively working with the business and its growers and will commence processing its crops this month. Larissa Smith with that report. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. Have you ever thought about a career change? There's a big skills shortage in Australia at the moment, and that's leading employers to offer eye-watering salaries for some of the most essential of jobs. One Northern Territory business is offering up to $150,000 for a truck driver position. Jason Pepper operates a transport business and put the job ad up on his Facebook page, but he was shocked after it was viewed by over 200,000 people, many of whom were taken aback by the money being offered for carting livestock. He told Dan Fitzgerald there's good money to be made as a truckie, but it's still difficult to find people for the job. Jason Pepper from Pepper Livestock Transport. What is it like trying to find find drivers at the moment? Uh, it's a little bit tough. Yeah, but I'm sure we're not the only ones out there struggling to find people, but there's still some good ones out there, hopefully. And what sort of links are you going to to try and find the right drivers for your business? Um, social media is uh, obviously the obvious one. It's a good one. Um, we do a bit of other advertising, um, fair bit of training, word of mouth is the sort of thing to try and find. Yeah, it's not, not what you know, it's who you know up here, so... Hopefully there's somebody we know that knows someone else and they're a good operator. Yeah, you had a social media post on your Facebook page that went a little bit viral. Um, tell us about that. We put it up obviously to try and find some good people. Social media seems to be a, a good way of um, getting the word out there. It did go a bit viral to use your words. Um, yeah, so a bit crazy. A lot of comments there. Um, yeah, some of them unrelated. But... Um, yeah, there's some good people out there that um, have, have called us and, and sort of potentially they might be able to, whether it be this year or next year, they'd be sort of looking to maybe come and give this type of work a try, which would be good for everybody. I think what attracted a lot of people to that post was the fact that you were offering up to $150,000 a year for a road train driver. Is that industry standard or are you offering a bit more there? Hopefully it's a standard. It might be a little bit more than some. Um, this type of work, you either love it or you hate it. Um, so the fact that we get paid to do it at all for some people is a bonus. So the people that we're looking for are normally the ones that, that just, just love this lifestyle. It's not really a job, it's a lifestyle. So um, the money's a bonus. And by offering that sort of money, are you finding you are attracting some quality workers? I think so, yeah. Yeah, we've got a good team at the moment. So 
um, yeah, I'd like to think that the money has attracted, you know, some good operators. And has that changed much, the, the sort of money that is being offered over your time in the biz, in the industry? Yeah, it's definitely changed a lot. So um, the industry probably hasn't been that good to itself, really. A lot of people think that um, we don't sleep, we don't eat, we don't shower, that type of thing, and that's just not the case at all. So, yeah, the industry probably hasn't helped itself in a way, so... It's good now that um, we can pay people properly and they can have a bit of a, a bit more of a casual approach to the job, not quite so full on like it was back in the day. And you think conditions have improved, have they? Oh, now's the time to do it. I think with technology, things are so much better with bunk air cons and that type of thing that never used to exist, obviously. So, it, yeah, with the technology we've got now, it's definitely a much more comfortable job than what it would have been in days gone by. And you say you were trying to attract people by the lifestyle that's on offer for being a, a, a truckie in the top end. What is that lifestyle like? You're a little bit of a, a nomad, I suppose, or a gypsy. You just cruise around, you are where you are. It can be hard on home life, obviously, because you're not really sure when you're going to get home. But um, obviously that's something we can work with if, if we know when people need to be back for particular things. But all in all, the, the lifestyle is you're just happy to be where you are and then that... Um, uh, if you're flexible, that's sort of normally what brings the money as well because you're cruising around, you um, can go anywhere where the work is, which means at the end of the day that's more money for for that driver, so it, it seems to work for everybody. And what's it like for drivers who just don't know where they're going to be going the next day? Yeah, What's that like? When I first started doing this type of work, um, I was always very keen for the afternoon phone call from the office to find out where I was going to go because I didn't. I was, you know, just waiting for that call and then um, going somewhere that you've possibly never been before. So it was a bit of a mystery. Um, we've got a young fellow working for us now, who is exactly the same. He just is looking forward to that phone call to find out whereabouts he is. You know, he's going that on his next job. And that's all part of the excitement, is it? Just not knowing where you're going the next day. Oh, for sure, yeah, because you, um, you end up with friends all over the country, so, yeah, you might end up heading in a direction to catch up with someone you haven't seen for, you know, a year or two, so, or six months or whatever it is, so, yeah, you, you just, um, if you never know where you're going, and then, yeah, it, it often it becomes a bit of an adventure. That's Jason Pepper from Pepper Transport speaking there with Dan Fitzgerald. And according to Seek.com, the average salary for a road train driver in Australia ranges from $105,000 to $125,000. What do you think? Would you take up the challenge? Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. It was a momentous week with the funeral and National Day of Mourning for the late Queen Elizabeth II and it's not hard to think about the Queen without thinking of her love for corgis. They're small, low set and, well, let's face it, they're not all that athletic but in South Australia, corgis have been used as sheepdogs. Jean Milnes started using her corgi Tyrian to muster sheep on her farm in the south of Adelaide because she read they have been known to work with livestock for centuries. I just wanted to see if the instinct was still there. Most corgis these days are bred as pet dogs rather than as working dogs. And I just got into it because I thought this would be fun to do to see if she could remember what her ancestors used to do. How long have you used corgis for herding? Me personally, only for about the last four or five years. But 
corgis have been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. And do you think we might see a rise in the number of herding corgis in Australia in the future? I hope so. I still have the conversation with people who think corgis are wonderful, associate them with being the Queen's dog and don't realise that they actually have a job to do. There is a, I think, going to be an influx of people wanting corgis for the next year or so. And it would be nice if they did something more than just go to the dog park. How important do you think it is that these dogs go back to their roots? I think it's very important in any breed to maintain what they were intended to do. You know, we have, there's lots of retrieving breeds and they get, they get the opportunity to retrieve. Herding slightly different in that you need to have the stock in which, you know, so it's not quite as accessible. But I think it's important that any breed maintains whatever it was they were intended to do. And corgis fit into that quite nicely. And how much does your corgi enjoy herding? She loves it. She doesn't always get it right, but she loves it. I have another corgi who took one look and said, you know what, I'm not really interested in this. <laughs> so, you know, it, but that's, I think that's the same with any breed. You're going to get the ones that say, actually, no, don't want to do this. They have, they have personalities of their own and they continue to show us what they enjoy and what they don't. That's Jean Milnes talking about using her corgi to herd for competitions in South Australia. Meanwhile, Sadie Podger represents Australia's National Welsh Corgi Council and she thinks the dogs make great herding dogs because of their intelligence and their stature. They're known as healers and what they do is they actually nip at the bottom of the cattle to make sure that the beast actually does what they want it to do. And they're short in stature means that they're able to get out of the road of a kicking hoof if required. How good of a cattle dog are corgis? They are excellent. They found in the olden days, they actually found that the corgis were much better than any other breed at the time. So they've been around since the 9th, 10th century. So they've been around for a little while. And are they still around as cattle dogs? There's not as many farmers in that nowadays using the corgi. Most of them are uh, city dwellers and uh, like the luxury of the city. But there's still dogs out there that do herding of sheep, cattle uh, on farms and also those that uh, do titles uh, through the ANKC, herding titles. So if they're such good farm dogs, why isn't it more common to see a corgi in the field? Probably because many people don't believe cardigans and Pembroke corgis can herd, so they're not used. They prefer the standard dogs such as the Australian cattle dog, uh, kelpies. In Australia, that's what generally the farmers use, maybe border collies as well. And so what evidence is there that corgis make fantastic farm dogs? There are a lot of stories on the internet, books, history books, um, where they actually come from, what they actually do. On the internet, you can find videos of them actually herding and they're very quick when they herd. They can roll from one side, do the what we call the corgi roll, go from one side of the, the cattle to the other side with the, and then sort of directing the, the cattle to where they want it because cattle can be quite stubborn. They're low to the ground, so they can drop their head a little bit and basically the hoof 
goes over the top of their head where a taller dog could get hit in the head. Were they initially bred for this sort of work? In that long time, years ago, basically, yes. They, they were farm dogs and they, they found, well, they were pets, but then the farmers found that these dogs are actually quite smart and adapt to their conditions that they're, they're in and found that they were the better of all the cattle-type dogs that they had. How many Australian farmers do you know that use corgis for their herding? Not too many. <laughs> um, but they're out there? They're, they are out there. A lot of farmers may have a corgi in the background that helps them, but not necessarily on their working dog team. Sadie Podger, Secretary and Treasurer from the National Welsh Corgi Council, speaking there with Sophie Johnson about using corgis to work with livestock. And you can see them in action on Sophie's online story. Just search ABC Rural and Corgi and you'll find it there. That's all we have time for on this Countrywide. Thanks for your company. My name's Alex Trelaw. For more rural news, visit abc.net.au forward slash rural.